Hello listeners, welcome to Explore FI Canada, where we sit at the round table with Canadians and share their thoughts, ideas and personal journeys to financial independence. Thanks to Matt McKeever for sponsoring Explore FI Canada. Matt is a Canadian investor, CPA, entrepreneur, and real estate expert who achieved fire at age 31. Do us a favor and check out his YouTube channel by searching Matt McKeever or using the link in our show notes. Welcome back, listeners. Explorify Canada Money Mechanic is with you and my buddy from the continent, Chrissy. Hello. Hi, Money Mechanic. How are you doing today? Fantastic. And I have a little known trivia fact for you, Chrissy. What's that? Back when I was young, like little boy young, I used to go to CFL games all the time with my dad. But we didn't have much money because even back then, you know, we're talking 80s. We're talking like Swerve and Mervin Fernandez, Roy DeWalt time. Like we're talking way back. We used to buy the Safeway pack of tickets because we get two tickets. You probably remember those. I do. <laughs> and it was like the nosebleed section at the top of BC Place, but it was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. And we'd sneak down after like the first quarter because there was a little corner section near the end zone that was like the super high price section, but nobody ever sat there because if you're paying full pop, you sat like at the 50 yard line. So we'd sneak down, get like as close and personal uh, to the players as possible. So, you know, I was a fan from way back then, of course, the BC Lions, and it's a pleasure and a privilege today to have a CFL player join us on the show. And not only a CFL player, but an incredible inspiration in the finance community. He's all about financial education. And Courtney Steven, welcome. Hey, I appreciate it. It's glad to be in the company of some CFL fans. That's that's like homecoming <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. I just remember it was so, so cool for me as a kid. You know, my, my biggest goal was to catch a ball like when it came out of the end zone, but I never did because we weren't behind the, the upright. So I never got one of those, right? But uh, I did get Roy DeWalt's signature. I, you probably may not even remember him. That's going way back to the 80s. You know what, though? I feel like the CFL is cool because the players, you can like reach out and touch them, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. liable to run into a player at the grocery store and just be like, hey, weren't you just <laughs> on TV like last week? And there's normal people who are, you know, just happen to tackle and catch for a living. So for sure, yeah. for sure. Well, here you are. Give us the uh, 30,000 foot view of your story, not only the sports side of it, but we're here to talk about the financial independence side of it, too. So uh, introduce yourself for our listeners. All right. So, uh, yeah, my name is Courtney Steven. I'm originally from Brampton, Ontario. I grew up in the same house that my mom still lives in to this day. So really born and raised, you know, in just modest family. And my parents did a lot to make sure that I was, one, staying out of trouble. Not that I was like a troubled kid, but just when you're living in a city where there's not much to do except play sports, if you're not playing, then you know how kids are, you know, idle hands are the devil's playground, mm-hmm. as they say. So My parents, they worked really hard to give me the opportunity to uh, play sports and to take advantage of the talent that I had. You know, I was I always seemed to be fast. I always seemed to be able to jump, catch a ball and stuff like that. And my dad would like to think that it comes from him. But actually, my mom is uh, the athlete of the family. She ran (laughs) for the Canadian national team like way back when she was uh, she calls it a spring chicken when she was younger. So. Yeah, they they did a lot for me to be able to play sports. And I was lucky to have the right mentors that, you know, guided me from a very young age. And a lot of the lessons that I learned about just life in general came from wanting to play football at the highest level. You know what I mean? So whether it be delaying the gratification of playing video games now 
to uh, actually be able to be really good at football and, and win later, or whether it be not spending five bucks now so I could save up and buy my own basketball net, right? Or whatever it may be. My parents just really ingrained in me, if you wanted to accomplish something, um, all you got to do is really work for it and have a plan. So I played football, long story short, in high school, went to Wilfrid Laurier University. I spent two years there. And then I transferred and went to Northern Illinois University on a walk-on, no scholarship. I just, my parents actually remortgaged their house to pull money out so that I was able to afford the $27,000 tuition for that single year. Wow. And so nobody's going to gamble $27,000 on something that they don't believe in, right? So another lesson that I learned on that path was that you got to have a body of work for people to really put something invested into you, right? You can't just show up and ask for something, but you have to have a track record of performance so that people can understand where's this trending? Are you moving in the direction that you say you're going or are you just popping up with no history and asking for a favor? So they they put up $27,000 and I was able one year later to parlay that into a full athletic scholarship at a top 25 D1 school, which was amazing. I went on to play in the winning a senior class there. Unfortunately, I had a knee injury while I was in college and I blew my ACL out. And for many athletes, that's like the moment where life flashes before your eyes. But it was good because as that happened, I had to sit down and really think about what I wanted to do in life and not being able to do the one thing that I had always been known for in whatever circle I was in, whether it was with my friends, my family, or at school, I was always known as an elite athlete. But when I couldn't walk down the stairs and make a, you know, a peanut butter sandwich for myself, I had to think, what other value can I bring? And that's when I started to think about you know, mentorship, teaching the, the kids how to leverage athleticism as a vehicle to get to other places. Um, I started thinking about business, right? And owning stuff, you know, not just being a consumer, but being a producer and an owner. I started thinking about um, what I was going to do with my education and how I was going to, you know, build a bridge to my next career after football, because even a long football career of 10 years, which is rare, even if you play 10 years, you're getting out of college, early 20s, you're still going to retire from football early to mid 30s at the latest if you played a really long time. And, And as you guys know, like, average life expectancy for a male in Canada is 78 years old. So there's a lot of useful life after that career. So that injury, uh, it took me from one of my highest peaks down to one of my lowest somber moments, but it was a moment of clarity that really laid a lot of foundation for many of the things I'm doing now. So I've been playing in the CFL eight years. I don't know if you can call it eight. Last year we didn't play, but this (laughs) coming up would be my, my eighth season in nine years. And, um, yeah, now I'm very active in the community. I started a youth mentorship program called Overtime Football Club, where we basically use sports to sneak life lessons in to these mm-hmm. kids and teach them about, you know, social professional uh, life skills through sport. And, you know, I'm active in personal finance, just trying to get into some of these schools and teach the students, the athletes and the future young professionals how they can manage their money and uh, build wealth for their family. That's really how I got to be where I am today. And I mean, at a glance, that's that's me in a nutshell. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe how much you've accomplished and the mindset you develop from such a young age to uh, 
not only diversify your investments, but to diversify your income earning and how you can be of value to the world. It's incredible what you're giving back now, not just um, to these kids, but also on your YouTube channel and your blog about financial education. Oh, thank you. No, and I will tell you, a lot of it came from uh, necessity, right? When you're an athlete who's walked on, right? The quote unquote walk on, that's what they call somebody who's on the team, but not on the scholarship. So in the NCAA, they have 85 scholarships for the, the football team. Okay. The team will usually have about 110, 115 players. So that means that there's going to be between 20 to 30 guys who are, you know, footing the bill on their own. Now, as one of those players, you're not getting the team meal the night before the game. You're not uh, getting team breakfast after the workouts. As a matter of fact, you're the one paying for everything. Well, your parents or your OSAP, if you borrowed money from Ontario government and <laughs> brought it with you down to the States. So part of the reason why I got so heavily into entrepreneurship is because I had to find a way to be able to do more than just eat, you know, cereal every day. So. <laughs> yeah. I started a t-shirt company with my friends back home and I had access to the computer labs at the school. And, you know, I always had kind of a creative eye. I love to mess around on Photoshop and stuff. So I made a few designs and I printed some tank tops and coming out of training camp after my first year, I started printing these t-shirts. I started with a batch of like 30 or 40 of these tank tops, these t-shirts and stuff like that, gave them to some guys on a football team and they just leveraged their social capital to make it a little bit more popular than it actually was. And uh, we, we showed up at a couple parties, took some pictures. And man, it was just around the time when Instagram was really starting to become popular. So people were looking to social media to find out what their friends were doing and they see them wearing these clothes. And all of a sudden they're like, where can I get one of those? And uh, I just started to sell t-shirts out of my little apartment in college and that helped me pay for groceries. <laughs> That's awesome. Entrepreneur from the start. Totally. Yeah. So how did you develop that mindset? Because not everyone at a young age or their parents are helping them get to school. They they take advantage and they don't necessarily appreciate it. And they they just drain the money away and they, they do what they want to have fun, but they don't think of how to supplement that and to um, make it better or to, to get to a better place. What, what brought you to that mindset? Uh, to be fair, like I've always just had a hunger for more. I don't think it's a negative thing to really want the best for yourself, you know, and uh, just growing up in a modest house, like I wasn't poor, right? I wouldn't say that, but I definitely came from a humble beginning and I always wanted to be able to give more to myself. And my parents, they were hardworking people, first of all. So I remember my mom having two jobs for most of my life. She would work five days a week and on the weekend she would go work somewhere else. And my dad was an entrepreneur. He came, immigrated from Trinidad and he, he worked as a courier for a long time in his own business. And so I just saw what it was to, to grind, like wake up and hustle, to put food on the table and to go take whatever it was that you wanted. So if I wanted to be able to hang out with my friends and buy $70 video games, then to me, that was a good trade-off, right? I'll sit in a computer lab for a few hours and tinker over some uh, you know, pictures and then I'll get on the phone, I'll research to find out who can bring this to life for me, find a screen printer. All right, now who has a car? 
I'm going to pay for your gas money to get down there. Or matter of fact, I'm going <laughs> to give you a free shirt if you bring me down here to pick these up. And just uh, being able to solve problems, right? It wasn't necessarily about getting rich, but it was more about how can I leverage the free time I have to create the income I need to do whatever else I wanted to do. And it's just from that that innate hunger I got from watching my parents go and get whatever it is that they needed or whatever it was that they wanted. It was a hardworking uh, ethic that was just built into me from a young kid. That kind of reminds me of one of the posts when I was looking through your blog here. You've got uh, the 1% perspective. Do the work that your competition won't. And I love the quote you've got down at the bottom here. And kind of what you're saying reminds me of, you know, how to become unstoppable. And you've written down here, what's the secret to becoming unstoppable? And when I read this, I know the context you're putting in, but it resonated with me from a financial independence context as well. So number one is consistent ambition, right? And that's to keep you moving forward. And you talked about this in another one of your presentations, it's it's your why, right? It's your ambition, it's your why to keep you moving forward. And then number two is is a game plan to keep you pointed in the right direction. And I think of FI with that. It's like, what's your game plan? How do you invest properly? Are you in index funds? Have the right direction moving forward, your savings plan, things like that. And number three, you've got daily practice to build your confidence and prepare you for your moment. And I think we can relate that to all aspects of life, right? It's thinking about this, engaging in the content, listening to people, learning from people, reading books, sharing, being part of the community, right? That's part of the daily practice, especially for financial independence in my mind. And number four is probably one of the most important, it's patience, right? Stay committed while you wait for your moment. And I really liked how that fits in because I know I can relate that to your athletic career and, and how much hard work it must be to become a professional athlete. But I also took that as like, hey, I can really apply that to my FI journey as well, because those are principles that are core. Oh, totally. And so much of what it takes to excel in one realm is transferable to success in another. So whether your goal is to be a C-suite executive, a professional athlete, a world-class photographer, the best parent on the block, A1 bus driver, or just you know financially independent individual who minds their own business and doesn't have to take from anybody because you've got the you've got the time that you've bought back with your patience with your plan with all of those things that you just mentioned i think one of the biggest problems i notice young and old the people who i talk to about money they don't have an awareness of where they stand and they don't have a clear enough picture of where they're going so if you're trying to go somewhere but you don't necessarily know where it is and you don't even know where you're beginning then what does the path look like? What should the first step be? Should it be left? Should it be right? Should you run? Is this a place to move with caution? Should I back up first? Right? So I always start with understanding why you want to do something because it's going to be hard. Anything that is worth having in life is going to be challenging. And depending on who you're around, the people who you expose your ideas to will either say, you know what? That's a great idea. I think you should go for it. Or if they don't see it as something as possible for themselves, they might tell you, 
man, that's going to be pretty tough. I don't know why you're saving so much money. I don't know why you don't just buy a new car. I don't know why you, you, you got wallpaper. You should you should tear this down, uh, sand this, prime this. Matter of fact, put on this this pearl lace. It would look great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you consume, have to know. Consume, consume. Consume. Please yeah. consume and be like me. But you have to know why you want to do something if you're going to stay the course, right? And that's where it all starts. What is the purpose? Then you have to get an awareness of where you're at and build a plan because when you build a plan you're taking that big macro picture of what the ideal vision coming to life would look like and you're able to decompose that and figure out what is the first step in this staircase actually look like because now when i can focus on one slice of the scalpel you know what i'm saying i can just boom make the first play perfectly lay one brick you don't have to build the whole house at one time just lay one brick perfect and then go on from there. Because if you rush in the beginning, you're going to have to end up backtracking anyways. If you don't know you're building a house and you think you're you're building a bridge, you're not going to be successful, right? So you got to have purpose. You got to have awareness of where you're at. You got to have a plan and, and you have to stick to the plan. Be patient. It won't happen overnight. Anything that is built overnight can fall apart overnight. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say that uh, your mindset to me, it seems very different from the typical professional athlete. We all hear about the crazy stories of people. They, they win a huge fortune early on and then they blow it all. Like how You must be surrounded by that kind of mentality. How did you not let that come in and, and affect you in the way that you live your own life? Well, you know what? I feel like to a degree, we all, we all stretch ourselves at times and it's a matter of going back to those same things, like what was the reason why you wanted to become a professional athlete? Was it really your dream in the first place? So for me, I knew that I wanted to be somebody who could earn a living off of my skill set because I thought that'd be the greatest way for me to contribute to my family. That's how it really began. You know, I remember sitting on the floor in the kitchen, not because we didn't have chairs, but just because I was a little kid (laughs) and just saying like, man, I'm going to go pro. I'm going to buy you a house. Like telling my mom that, you know, I haven't, I haven't bought my mom a house. Um, but just as a kid, like those are the kind of aspirations I had because the people I was looking up to, that's what they were doing. And I felt like when I got to the pros, um, I had somewhat of a, not necessarily obligation, but I had, you know, a focus on doing what was going to be right in the long run because the average career in the CFL I also think it's the same number in the NFL, but the average career is like two and a half years. Really? Right. So the average contract is three years. That means that most people don't even see the end of their first contract, let alone a second contract. So my mindset from the very beginning, as soon as I was drafted, the mindset was, if this thing is over at any point in time, I need to be able to look back and have something to show for it. And keeping that at the front of mind, no matter what I did, I knew that, okay, immediately getting into the league, I'm entering with $20,800 of student debt. If this is over, I need to have something to show for it. So before anything else, before I buy a house, before before I buy a car, I'm going to attack that. So coming into the CFL, I started out with four roommates. I was already in college before that. I was used to having roommates. I wanted to, I wanted to get money. I didn't want to be independent. I was already living in a foreign country by myself. I was independent. I wanted to get money. So I decided to stay with the roommates. And that was one of the biggest expenses that I could possibly have cut way down 
And that allowed me to accumulate a good chunk of change on what was really a modest salary. My rookie salary in the CFL was $48,000 plus playing incentives plus playoff incentives. So in my rookie year, I just know you guys like to hear numbers on these types of things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So my rookie year, I ended up grossing around seventy-five dollars or $78,000. So I'm taking home closer to fifty, right? But this is the first time that I'm, I'm living on my own, not in school, right? So there's no cafeteria to go to. Like, you got to get the food. You got to pay the rent. Uh, you split the utilities among my roommates. But I knew that this was a great fork in the road, right, where I could either decide to buckle down for a little while now that I'm finally making money and act like I'm broke and reap the benefits for a long, long time, or I could go off the deep end. Now, I dipped my toe in the deep end now. I have to tell you, I, <laughs> you did. I, I, bought, I bought some Gucci glasses, $700. <laughs> okay. I eventually left them in a cab in BC. Oh, so no. <laughs> of course. If you guys see them, pick them up for me. But I was really focused on paying down that debt. That was a very first step for me. And I'm not sure where I got that idea from. Um, in college, I was listening to more uh, investing books, like audiobooks and reading about uh, real estate and things like that. But I hadn't been introduced to the total money makeover, Dave Ramsey and those kinds of things as yet. I just, to me, it made sense. Like if you're in a hole, you can't build anything. You need to fill the hole up first before you can uh, build a a castle on top of that. So I wanted to pay that debt off. And after that year, I actually moved back in with my parents. Um, I moved back in with my parents and in the off season, I finished up one course that I had to do for university and I got a part-time job. Like I worked at the mall part-time in Foot Locker selling sneakers as a pro athlete. And a lot of people would say, man, is the CFL that bad? No, the CFL is amazing because they give you six months of time freedom, which a lot of people would use to hit as many high scores as they can. But I wasn't necessarily not playing any video games or not relaxing, but the time is our greatest asset. And I think if anybody's going to take something away from this conversation, they need to understand that Oprah Winfrey has 24 hours in her day. Jay-Z has 24 hours in his day. Bill Gates has 24 hours in his day. And we all got 24 hours in our day. Now, some of us have kids. Some of us have jobs where we work in an actual physical location and we got to commute. But the fact of the matter is that you can suffer now and live with the benefits for a much longer time if you set yourself up in a in a disciplined manner and that's what i was really trying to do for those first two three years and i was able to knock out that twenty thousand eight hundred dollars of debt within the two years of my my playing career like really getting into the first two two and a half years and i I leveled it completely and that was one of my proudest accomplishments to be honest you just like set me up perfectly there you just (laughs) gave me like a perfect pass because i this is another one of your posts that i pulled up and highlighted and you just you laid yourself right into it you've got one called money is life the trouble with trading time for dollars uh like congratulations on crushing that debt super early in your playing career because that's not a huge salary that's a comparable salary to a lot of people that come out of university or college and go into the workforce right so having that kind of debt to hit right away is is a big thing and I had a little bit of student loan debt myself to to work on, and that's definitely commendable. And I think you're right. That builds the foundation. It fills in the hole. It allows you to start building stuff. Now, this this money is life thing. I, I read through it, and the funny thing is, is I'm reading this. I'm like, man, I wonder if Courtney's read Your Money or Your Life, because this sounds just like that book. I'm like, this is awesome. Where did you get this from? And then I get to the bottom, I'm like, oh, he's got Your Money Your Life down there. So I'm like, he's got this nailed. But so... 
without going too deep into this, just run us through this story, like your story of what this was like for you, because you were living a bit of a crazy schedule and it kind of, uh, you know, it clicked for you that you're like, man, how much time, what is this worth? What is this time worth? Can you, do you think you can summarize it the way you did in the article? Cause it's, it's really good. And our listeners would like to hear it, I think. Totally. So I, like I said, I like to work in the off season because I'm super ambitious. And if I'm not doing something, I get itchy. Right. So after uh, I can't remember what year it was, it was right after my son was born. Yeah. You said you had a, a three month old. Right. So my son yeah. was born in 2019. So this is recent. Yeah. So my son was born in 2019. I uh, came home from the season and I wanted to start getting some professional experience, not necessarily in the mall like when I was when I was younger. I wanted to, you know, get into sales. Uh, tech sales to be specific. So during that off season, that was my plan. And I found a job at a great company, like amazing company, uh, great culture, great environment, great people, amazing benefits package, um, all that stuff, everything that you could ask for. And it was downtown Toronto. Now me living in the suburbs, for me to get to work every day, it was a little bit of a hike. So after coming home a few times, you know, I only ended up working there for two months, but after coming home a few times and my wife was literally putting my son to bed and coming out of the room as I'm coming in the door. And this is my firstborn, right? I'm missing the whole day with this guy. I'm waking up at five something in the morning, doing my thing and I'm out of the house and coming home when he's going to sleep. So throughout the whole day, I'm missing my family. So it made me sit down and think like, okay, they're paying me X amount of dollars to be on the clock, but it's not just the time that I'm on the clock that matters. It's the time that I'm away from my family that I'm really exchanging for this salary. So I ran down the numbers to see how many hours per day am I actually away from my family? And then I took my salary and I broke it out based on the time I was away, not based on the time that I was on the clock. And so once I was able to see that, you know, I'm actually making, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I'm actually making a couple dollars per hour at this job <laughs> and not the massive salary that they said it was, I started to see that there was a great opportunity cost here and that I was selling myself short and my time was not nearly being compensated for the value that it actually was. So the amount of stress it was putting on me and my family being away, it wasn't really paying off. And then what made it worse is that my phone broke and I ended up buying a new phone. And these, these iPhones, they're pretty expensive. And once I calculated the price of that iPhone, not in a matter of dollars, but in a number of hours that I spent away from my family in exchange for that iPhone, it really opened my mind because I ended up spending two and a half days away from my family to get that phone. And it made me look at it differently and think, really, if I'm going to spend so much time on these possessions, they better be bringing a hell of a lot of value back to my life. So I'm not against spending your money on things, but I really want to go back to the awareness of what are you exchanging for the things that you own? Because it's not just it's not just money. Money carries the value, but you sacrificed your time to get that that value to transfer over to the person selling you whatever it may be. You want to make sure that you're trading your time for things that are of value to you and not just giving it away because you don't appreciate the hours of your own life. 
that's such a core philosophy of the whole fire and financial independence movement. Well summed up right there. Man, honestly, it's, it's much better written than it is spoken. <laughs> but if, uh, if you guys are interested in checking it out, it's on the website. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely in the show notes, and it's CourtneyStephen.com. So yeah, that'll be there for all the listeners to find. And it, it's a perfect read because yeah, you summed it up well. But you figured out that you're away from home for 13 hours every day, and you know you're spending hardly any time with your uh, with your baby son, right? And I can tell how important that would be for everybody. So, Chrissy, to let you jump in because I've been running the conversation here. <laughs> well, how about now is a good time to take a break to our sponsor. Good job. You remembered this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So let's have a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, Money Mechanic, you use Passive, right? How do you like it? It's great. It's like my own personalized robo-advisor. I set it up one time, then Passive helps keep my portfolio balanced by securely connecting to Questrade. Wow. Sounds like Passive saves you a lot of time. Yeah. No more spreadsheets. And Passive even has one-click purchasing which makes life so much easier. That sounds amazing. I also heard that Passive added a new goal feature to help DIY investors reach their investment targets. That's right. The goal feature is built right in and helps you stay on track with your investments. Chrissy, did you know that Passive is free for Questrade clients? Free is good, especially when it normally costs $99. How can our listeners get in on this offer? Just go to passive.com forward slash EFIC. That's passive with no e dot com forward slash EFIC. Okay, everyone, we are back and we are going to continue our conversation with Courtney. And something I really want to talk about with you is um, you have quite a presence online and it's a little surprising. I want to bring it back again to having a pro athlete talk about financial um, education and investing. And I'm just wondering who your audience is, because you have so much knowledge and experience to share. And I'm wondering, who are you getting through to? Because I think your message is a bit unique in that the, the source is different from what you normally see out there. So who do you normally talk to? You know, that's a great question, because when this all began, a little bit of a story. Uh, basically, my father got sick last year, right? So he's he's in the hospital still to this day. And he got sick right before Good Friday, um, or was it on Good Friday of 2020? Now, he, he didn't have COVID, but he did have a sickness that basically, you know, put his life in jeopardy. And so the gravity of the situation was such that it really made me reflect on a lot. And like I mentioned earlier, my parents sacrificed so much for me. Like, I'm sure everybody could say, or, you know, most people have that, you know, my parents gave up the world for me, but my parents really did. So I'm thinking about everything my dad's taught me. And then I'm looking at my kids like they can't even really understand me right now. So God forbid something was to happen. I need to be able to leave these lessons because generational wealth, which is really my ultimate goal is not necessarily about money, but it's about how you can understand the levers you need to pull to live the life you want to live. And money is a big part of that, but also understanding how money relates to time and understanding how your values play into the decisions you make. So I originally started writing these articles as somewhat of a anthology I could hand down to my kids. You know, it was just purely from the heart, like it's not for anybody to it's public. So obviously it's for people to read, but it wasn't intended for anybody other than Lorenzo and Leah, my two kids. 
And so that's that's how it began. And the feedback was really it was it was positive, strong, positive feedback. And that encouraged me to continue writing. And as I continued with the blog, more of my friends, you know, uh, the younger like I guess millennial generation, people who were just starting their family, people who were just getting out of school, entering into this world and realizing they had no idea what was coming for them. Uh, They started to ask me questions and I would write about the answers. So what is it like to invest? Like, how do I buy a stock? Like what actually is a stock when you break it down? You know, they, uh, they would ask me these things. And because I was putting myself out there, I became one of the shining lights in a kind of dark space where not necessarily like it was dark as in if it was bad, but it was dark as if there was nobody out there. Like, is, is anybody home? Like, is anybody speaking my language? And I was one of the people who was able to communicate to at least my my peers, people who were like me, uh, young parents, people who are recently graduated, people who are going through career transition, people who have student debt, people who have a mortgage, people who want to be financially free but aren't there yet, really just whoever wants to build something for their family that's the ultimate goal and that's what i always say on my youtube channel is welcome to the money game where we teach you how to build wealth for your family because at the end of the day uh, if i do nothing else i want to help people uh, create the mindset that is necessary to have a fulfilling life and in the world we live in uh, the consumerism that we're brainwashed into being a part of really stops us from having our true dream which is living a good life you know so to get past the superficial and build in that mindset of how money can play into your lifestyle that's really who i'm trying to get to and that's what all my work is aimed towards yeah that really reflects what the fire movement is about it's not about stopping work it's about living the life that you really want to live and giving yourself options to do that absolutely absolutely so your own fi journey what does that look like moving forward from here? You've got a few more years playing left and then you've already started all these other projects. What do you see is, how do you see yourself using your time moving forward on your journey towards financial independence? Or is that your end game is, you know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, athletes generally kind of fire anyway and they need to figure out what they are going to do afterwards. So what is your next career? What's it look like in the next 10 years for you? Well, you know, um, I was actually introduced to the concept of financial independence, not under the same name, but the concept of having time freedom independent of your work in the book, The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. So I initially tapped into that book as an entrepreneur thinking, how can I optimize my business? And when he started talking about micro-retirements, I think that's a term that he used, it made so much sense to me because... If you retire at 65 years old, I've already had two knee surgeries. The doctor told me when I'm 50, I'm getting a replacement, whether I keep playing or not. So I'm thinking about how can I capitalize on these prime years and having the financial resilience to be able to, you know, stay home with your kids if you need to, like I've done during the pandemic, or to be able to travel and go places for a week when you want to. Uh, I feel like that's the flavor of financial independence that I, I enjoy because on my path to a greater independence, I'm enjoying the process and the fruits of that labor. So once you get to a certain point, you don't have to uh, deprive yourself of certain things in life you want to do because you've already paid a certain amount of dues. 
right? I've already cleared out my debt. And that's that's something that's given me the initial stages of freedom where, you know what, if I don't want to work for six months because my employer basically, essentially, they didn't lay everybody off, but there was no football season. So, I mean, it's, it's effectively getting laid off, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, there was some government things that we were able to apply for, but people who were not prepared for that moment had to take drastic measures. But because I was already on this financial independence journey, it gave me the flexibility to say, all right, to my wife, you're already going on a maternity leave. I'm going to join you at home. We have two young kids. Let's do what's best for our family. And I think at the end of the day, you know, your flavor of phi and my flavor of, of phi, it's whatever's going to work for your family and your situation. So I, I think that's that's where I'm at and where I'm headed towards is a place where I can do that on a more extended period. So I haven't been officially working since last year, but we're not we're not under duress. Right. We're we were set up for this. No, it's it's mini refi, Chrissy, mini, mini. retirement financial independence mini refi <laughs> are you coining that i've I'm, I'm thrown it out there i can co-coin it with you too but it just came to me. i was like well it's kind of retirement before financial independence but they're just mini ones they're the four-hour work week mini ones mini refis mini refi. well, <laughs> i like it i love i love how your journey kind of it sums up the way the FIRE movement is evolving. It, it's more about that incremental freedom that you're gaining along the way. It's not about hitting the big goal at the end and then you're out, right? It's this little, the mini refis all along the way, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. It's gaining that freedom and you getting to stay home with your little ones during this pandemic and not have that anxiety about, am I going to be okay? You know you're going to be okay because like you said, you were prepared and what a gift that is to your wife and your kids and to yourself to be able to do that. Absolutely. And I mean, we definitely have other goals, right? So um, there's there's plateaus you reach, right? And right now we're standing in a certain position. But like I said earlier, I'm looking for what's the next stage that I can climb to, right? And I want to be, be able to say, I have no student debt. I'm going to pay my house down on an accelerated path. Because while some people will argue, yes, your primary residence is not a cash producing asset, right? Unless you're renting out rooms inside of your house, it is not an asset in the actual sense that it puts money in your pocket. As a matter of fact, it's one of the biggest drains on your cash flow. But in the mindset that I have, I'm not looking at how can I get to the point of a 4% withdrawal? Because for me, my goals are different than my existence for the rest of my life. I'm trying to accumulate assets that I can leave in an estate and my primary residence is one of those things that would be the greatest wealth that I could transfer when I go. So entering into retirement with no mortgage is going to provide me with multiple benefits. One, it's going to reduce my cost of living. Two, it's going to free up that capital for me to continue to invest aggressively in the later years of my working before I retire. And then three, when I do go, your primary residence is able to be passed down to your kids with different tax implications than uh, an investment property or a secondary residence. So knowing where the bulk of your equity is and having a true estate plan is something that is going to be beneficial to those who are thinking two and three generations down the line, because, you know, you can give your kids a million dollars or Growing up, you can teach your kids how the equity is accumulating in their house and why it's a great thing to be an owner 
of assets and how they can become wealthy by owning things and then pass it down to them when they're ready to take over. So that that's my plan. I think you bring up a great point there that we haven't really talked about on the show before. When you are thinking about generational wealth or passing something on, if you don't have that primary residence, then you are subject to a lot of taxes on your estate, d- depending which accounts they come out from. But, you know, all things being equal is if you had a million dollar RSP and a million dollar house, you're going to get, they're going to get the RSP out, but it's going to be taxable, right? Whereas the property is going to transfer them and it's not going to be taxable. So there are some big considerations there. That's a good point to bring up. Totally. And I mean, not to, not to go too deep in the rabbit hole, but yeah, one of the things that wealthy people do is they will get to a certain point where, okay, once the estate becomes a primary focus of their investing and their wealth creation, they're fine. Their wife is fine. If I'm speaking as myself, right? I'm fine. My wife is fine. Okay. Right now is taken care of. Okay. The immediate future that's taken care of. Now, if we're talking about the legacy, how can I not only generate wealth, but how can I protect that wealth? And one of the vehicles that they use once they hit that threshold, not before, is life insurance policies. Yep. Because if you know how a life insurance policy works, it is exempt from tax, right? So that's why financial advice for me and financial advice for somebody who's just getting out of college and financial advice for somebody who's already in retirement, it can differ. And there's no one shoe that fits all. For somebody that who's really wealthy, maybe a universal life policy is actually an amazing vehicle to transfer a large lump sum of money tax sheltered from one generation to the next. And that's a great succession plan. But maybe if you're just coming out of college, a universal life policy would be the worst thing that you could possibly do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's important to not tell people what to do, but to introduce them like, hey, look, this is the buffet. Over here, we've got you know savings strategies. Over here, we've got investment vehicles. Down there, we got income protection. How are you going to build your financial plan so that you're good right now in the near future and wait on a road. Yeah, excellent point, excellent point. Well, like we like to say, right? Personal finance is personal, and the easiest question <laughs> answers, or the answer is, it depends. It depends. <laughs> it depends. Exactly. It depends. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the life insurance uh, topic because it's actually something we wanted to discuss on the show. So you reminded us that <laughs> we need to bring an expert on. We need an expert. Chris, are you ready to pivot? I want to talk about some investments. Yes, I'm ready. I was about are you to ready? Let are you, you sure? lead into that. Yes. Are you sure? <laughs> I'll let you lead that one. That's that's totally right up your alley. Yeah, I you know, there's a lot of directions to go here and I've been watching Courtney's YouTube videos because he's got lots of these sort of ten minute quick hits about stocks and how to start investing. And you know, you didn't even mention Courtney, you didn't even pump yourself yet that you've got a little mini stock course on your website, which I haven't paid for yet, but I'm super tempted. But I did also <laughs> sign up, and I didn't get the email yet with my little uh, my kid I was supposed to get. So I'll, I'll have to ask you about that afterwards. You gotta but... check your junk mail. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Now listen, okay. So I, I made some notes here because I wanted to ask you about a few things, right? So I'm just throwing them out there, but then we'll tackle them one by one. Is you've got a, a core and a satellite investing strategy, which is interesting. So we're going to talk about that. And then one of your more recent YouTube videos, you came up with the vibes way of judging stocks. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty interesting. I like that one. And uh, last but not least, we're going to dig, not dig into, we're going to gloss over some 
NFTs because it's funny that I saw you tweet that because we just did an FI Garage YouTube on it and it, it blows my mind. So let's just start at the beginning and talk about your core and satellite investing strategy. All right. So I'm sure that many people who are, if they're listening to this, they're going to be familiar with, well, this is an assumption. Do you know what happens when you make an assumption? Yep. <laughs> but you might be familiar with index investing, whether it be through index mutual funds or whether it's index ETFs. And the big thought behind them is whether you're following, you know, the random walk hypothesis or the efficient market hypothesis, efficient market theory, whatever it is, uh, rational expectations. If you really want to get into investing theory, basically you can't beat the market. That's what they say, right? Uh, because there's people who get paid a whole lot of money to invest and the large percentage of them, they lag behind what the actual broad market does as a whole on a year-to-year -year basis. Maybe you can beat it here and there, but over the long course of time, the index is generally the most reliable way to invest. And this is something that has been proven in many a studies. Yep. However, however, there is also a lot of people who have been able to, to generate alpha, which is- I knew he was gonna say it. <laughs> yeah, hey, look, if I'm gonna come on here, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let people learn something. So if you're if you're in the investing world, there's something called alpha, and that is the amount of return you're able to generate on top of what the index is doing, right? To put it in simple terms. So there's people who generate alpha every single year. And the way that you're able to do that is by putting a little uh, sriracha on top of your index <laughs> funds, if you will, right? So really, I would like to just break it like this. The core in a satellite strategy is somewhat like the solar system, okay? In the middle of our solar system, we have the sun. It's the biggest, brightest, warmest object in all of the solar system. It keeps us warm, okay? It provides us with the energy of life. That is the main thing that we go to and we rely on. These are your indexes, okay? Whether they're mutual funds or ETFs, the core of your portfolio, the biggest portion of your portfolio is going to be the indexes. And that's going to give you the stability and, you know, the sleep at night factor. So for most people, that's going to be between 60 to 90% of their portfolio, 60 to 80% of their portfolio, depending on your personal preference. And then the satellites, those are like the little planets that rotate around the sun. And those are going to be the other auxiliary investments that you make that will put you overweight in whichever stocks that you believe have the best chance to outperform the index. So just as an example, you could say, all right, the S&P 500 index, it has 500 companies, but I really think for whatever reason, I don't know, Roku, I don't even know if they're in the S&P 500, but Roku is going to be <laughs> probably the top Nasdaq, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Right, yes. exactly. I just didn't want to say Apple because that, that's every example, right? <laughs> yeah. I was just hoping you weren't going to say Tesla, that's all. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah, let's just say whatever company you pick, you think that they're going to do really well. You would add that to your satellite, right? And so you're going to pick between, you know, a handful, maybe five to 10 securities maybe a couple more that are going to make up these satellites in your portfolio. But you're hoping that overexposure to those is going to create that alpha that we were talking about that's going to give you a little bit more of a return than the overall market. But of course, this is a strategy for people who are looking for a little bit more risk. You know, um, if risky assets always gave a higher return, they wouldn't be risky. 
right? So people who generally do this are the ones who have a greater risk tolerance or a greater risk capacity. If you're getting closer to the point where you're going to need to withdraw your funds, you don't have a capacity to take on risk because you don't have the timeline to make up for a loss, right? But if your personality is such that you have a greater risk tolerance and when there's a drawdown, you're able to hang in there and not sell at the low. And if your timeline is such that you have a great enough risk capacity, then this is a strategy that you can consider applying in your own investing. Okay, I wanna, I wanna hone this down just a little bit. Uh, as you were speaking there, I was thinking about it. Now let's just refer to the Canadian market just because we're Canadian content, right? So I've got my typical index fund in let's call it VGrow because I know everybody likes that one, or VQT. They hold similar Canadian holdings, right? Now, the example I'm trying to get to is that if you look at the Canadian holdings in those index funds, those ETFs, you're going to see that they hold the majority of the banks. They're going to hold the majority of the utility companies. They're going to hold the biggest companies in Canada, right? So for my satellite picks, I guess this is my question is, what kind of pick am I thinking of? Because in your example there, you used a fairly large company, but that company is going to be already well represented within my index. So if I hold a Canadian index, is one of my satellite companies going to be TD? Or is one of my satellite companies going to be sort of like a smaller mid cap that's not represented in there, but that I've done the research on, I think there's growth and alpha there. That's just sort of what I was thinking, what you thought about that. So in general, what you're going to, now, obviously this isn't specific advice, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to vary based on, it's going to vary based on your, your appetite for risk, right? So what you're looking for is stocks that have a high beta. Now I'm, I'm going to break this down too, because I, I want people to really raise their IQ up higher than they thought it could go today. Okay. Nice. <laughs> nice. So basically beta is a measure of how correlated an asset is to the, at, to the index. Right. So at a beta of 1.0, you're moving in lockstep with the index at a beta of 0.5 for every dollar that the index goes up, you're only going up 50 cents. Those are like, you know, your utility companies, the uh, the defensive stocks, because at the same time, if the index drops by a dollar, they're only dropping 50 cents. Yeah. But high beta stocks tend to be more volatile. Now, volatility is not only when stocks go down, you can have volatility to the upside. So volatility just means that if the index goes up by $1 and I have a stock with 2.0 beta, that means that it's gonna go up by $2. So generally speaking, to get back to your point, what is gonna be in the satellite? If you're looking for something that's more conservative, maybe they're low beta stocks and you're going to have, you know, an overexposure to Enbridge because you know that the way that their business model is, they have multi-year contracts, they have reliable cash flows. And regardless if we're in a recession or not, people are going to continue to need gas to heat up their house. So you're going to buy Enbridge and make sure your portfolio is more conservative. Or if you want your, your portfolio to be more aggressive, then maybe it's these small healthcare companies that are working on the cure for cancer. And maybe these companies will fizzle out in five or 10 years and you might actually lose money. But on the chance that that company gains massively, 
there's going to be a huge upside for you putting a small amount of money into that investment. Now, of course, these are both ends of the spectrum and there's every option in between. So you could invest in a Shopify that is a proven company that's growing at a rate faster than the overall index. But I think we can rest assured that Shopify is not going to disappear in the next six to 12 months, right? Maybe in, in 10 years, it'll be gone, but you're going to pick what assets fit your risk tolerance based on what you're looking for as a return. And one last thing I would just say too is uh, it can be dangerous to measure your portfolio's performance based on the index just for the simple fact that if you look at how a real portfolio manager measures their success, if I'm running an endowment for a university, maybe I need to get 8% per year in order to provide scholarships and upgrades to the the buildings on campus, right? The endowment's large enough. We have enough money in treasury that all we need to do is hit 8%. Don't be a hero. Get 8%, protect the money, right? I don't care what the index does. I just need to get 8%. But if I'm, you know, say for example, in a hedge fund where I am measured on absolute performance, then it's a different measuring stick. So that's why they're trying to beat the index. Now, if you're just trying to retire by a certain age, maybe the index is exactly right for you. But you have to, first of all, start out with your own measuring stick of what's the goal. And based on your savings rate and how much you're able to contribute and how long you're going to be in the market, is 10% enough to get you to your goal? Then there's no need to take on extra risk because that's going to be unnecessary extra risk without a reward that is going to actually benefit you hitting your goal, right? And, and that's when you got to really just make sure you understand what vehicle or what assets are going to get you safely to your goal and not necessarily taking on more risk than you have to. Yeah, good response there. I like that one. And this kind of leads me into that part B of my question anyway, because I see a lot of people within the community that follow the index strategy. And that's fine. But I also see a lot of people that are starting to branch out. And of course, whenever there's excitement in the market or a little bit of irrationality or irrational exuberance, whatever you want to call it, people think, well, I, I can't go wrong picking stocks because they just keep going up. And sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. And again, good point. Thanks for bringing up that this is uh, entertainment purposes only and <laughs> just our opinions. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, but the second part of the question was you came up with a little acronym that I liked from your video. And, and folks can go listen to this whole video. It's good. You don't have to re regurgitate the whole thing. But just briefly, we can talk about vibes because exactly what you just said, if people are going to go and pick these satellite companies, it's pretty important that you have some basis of understanding of how to make an evaluation of those companies. So give us the quick breakdown on, on your vibes. Yeah, so the stock's got to feel good if it's going to go in your portfolio. That's where it's got to have the vibes. That's it. vibes. No, but really, it just it stands for value, industry, balance sheet, earning potential, special sauce, and significant news. Right. So the value is what you get for what you pay, and that's going to be looking at metrics such as price of sales, price of earnings, price of cash flow. Right. So. What is the business actually giving you for what you pay? Industry, you want to invest in companies that are leading their industry and not companies that are following in their industry. You also want to invest in industries that are growing, 
right? Because then the addressable market as a whole is wider and there's more customers available for everybody as opposed to being in a shrinking industry where the big conglomerates are pretty much just going to swallow up the small fish because there's no new customers to get. The only thing they could do is eat each other, right? Then you're going to look at the balance sheet. Now, as individuals, we're going to want to look at our balance sheet too because the balance sheet tells you what assets do they own, what liabilities do they owe to other people? And once you uh, subtract the liabilities from the assets, what equity remains, right? So it's going to let you know, how is this business capitalized? How did they get these assets? Did they offer a lot of shares and raise money and dilute the existing shareholders? Or did they borrow a lot of money? And if they borrowed a lot of money, at what interest rate did they borrow it, right? Because we want to know, is this business in jeopardy when interest rates rise? So then after you look at the balance sheet, you got to look at the earning potential. And this could be measured a number of ways. This could be a whole own podcast of itself. But yep. if you ever look at an income statement, you got revenue, the sales at the top line. You got the EBITDA. You've got the, the earnings per share, right? And these are all different measures of how good is this business at selling whatever it is they have to offer? How efficient is this business at keeping the most money when they make money? So like if I make a dollar, am I keeping 10 cents? When I make a dollar, am I keeping 50 cents? You just have to look at these things as if it was a business you owned, right? And once you understand it in those terms, the spreadsheets and stuff don't seem to be as intimidating. And then the special sauce, these are things that are intangible. Like what is their competitive advantage? Do they own patents, right? Do they have regulatory approvals that are going to be hard for other people to get, such as you know, laying down pipelines. We've we've seen how that could be tough in the recent news, right? Not everybody could just lay down a pipeline and start pumping oil through the countryside, right? Yeah. Do they have a network effect, such as a social network, where when one person gets it, it's more valuable for the next, right? Maybe they have hard switching costs, right? Like if I buy a Peloton, it's going to be hard for me to all of a sudden just switch to a Bowflex unless I buy another Bowflex. Or even a better example is if I'm using an iPhone and I have the, uh, the MacBook computer and I have the Apple AirPods and the Apple Watch, I don't, I don't want to leave Apple now because now my ecosystem's broken. Yep. So you're going to want to look for the competitive advantage and the leadership because that's an intangible that really matters. And then lastly, the significant news, right? What are the headlines? Are they acquiring companies? Are they coming under political fire? Uh, did the CEO just make a blunder and do something they really should not have done? You're going to want to look at all of these things. And it's not a complete list, but I promise you, if you go through that V-I-B-E-S-S, uh, you're going to have a good sense of if this is a company you're going to want to get involved with. Yeah, I love it. I think it's great. It's an easy one to remember. And uh, you nail all the points, all the important points there for sure. Chrissy, I got to let you jump in here a bit because my, <laughs> my last question is, it might just go off on a total tangent. <laughs> I, <laughs> he I, knows it I... too. He knows it too. <laughs> I just want to say, I, that's the first time I've really understood how to evaluate a company. I, it's all mumbo jumbo to me. It's not something I've ever been into, but having that vibes um, acronym, that really helps a lot to break it down in, in simple terms. Well, you know what? I actually, I took the Canadian securities course and they, they the studying is two volumes because I was thinking about becoming a financial advisor at a point. You should. <laughs> You're good at this. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, um, I wouldn't write it off, but one of the big things that's holding me back is just the compliance regulations. Like mm. it would be hard for me to get on here and give yeah. out this information, 
even though I'm not recommending stocks or anything, I would have to get all of this cleared by somebody mm -hmm. who really is not caring if, if people are learning, but they want to make sure that they don't get in trouble for somebody coming back. So simply because of those regulations, I didn't want that to stop me from being able to teach as many people as possible. Makes yeah, sense. yeah, that's a super good point because I've looked into it as well. And it's like you, it's hard to become an educator on one hand and then a finance professional on the other. It's the, the two don't really mix very well. So not at all. Okay. <laughs> Before we wrap up here, I just got to get this in here. NFTs. And I guarantee you, not many of our listeners are going to know what we're talking about. I mean, they might in a couple of weeks when this comes out, but <laughs> these are non-fungible tokens. And I'm going to take a shot at describing them, but I hope you can clear it up for me because Chrissy, have you heard of these? No, I have no idea I, what you're talking is, about. I bet, you, I bet you your kids probably have. Your, your husband probably does know. Okay. But so a non-fungible token is a, <laughs> I'm going to struggle with this. <laughs> it's, it's a digital, digitally signed, authenticated, it can be artwork or it could be a collectible. Right. So we'll talk about collectibles here because that's what Courtney knows about. But it it's it kind of blows my mind. This is like a new uh, far out there asset class. Like we remember I remember being the kid buying packs of hockey cards and, you know, football cards. Right. And that's what what's what that's what I think of. And that's kind of what we're talking about with non fungible tokens is their digital trading cards or digital collectibles. And. Go ahead, Courtney, help me out here because I'm struggling, <laughs> but you're like you're, you're on this. Yeah, so you really hit it. Like it's a digital collectible, right? So to understand what's non-fungible, it makes more sense to talk about what is fungible, yes. right? So if I have a $20 bill, if I have two $20 bills, right? They can have different serial numbers on them, but because they are fungible, I can give you either one and it doesn't make a difference. Yes. That's what it is to be fungible, right? It can be replaced with a lookalike and nobody cares, right? Whereas if I had the Fleer Michael Jordan rookie card, there's only a set number of those and each one has a serial number ordering it from one to whatever, one to 100. And you know that this is the 23rd Michael Jordan rookie card. This one is the most special because the serial number on this matches his jersey. This is worth quarter million dollars. Yeah. Right. So it's the technology of the blockchain, which I can explain in one second, which is allowing people to create digital collectibles that are authenticated. Right. So you can verify that this this is the one that it says it is. They are easy to transfer back and forth because they're digital. So you're not going to damage the corners on the trading card or, mm -hmm. or drop the ancient vase and break it. They're transparent, so meaning that every transaction that led up to this becoming yours, before this was in your possession, you can go back and look at how much it sold for and which user it was sold to. So it's transparent. And then it's uh, objective scarcity. Like you can see the serial numbers on all of them. And that's all of this is powered by the same thing that is powering Bitcoin, and all of these other cryptocurrencies. It is this technology known as the blockchain. So I don't know if you wanted me to talk about that. Well, I think we could really get sidetracked with this. Chrissy will just like leave the room. She'll just walk out and leave <laughs> us talking. But <laughs> the, I think the thing that's interesting, and 
this is probably enough for listeners to just go, huh, interesting. I better, I wish I should Google that. The thing that's catching me is that the money that's changing hands on these is absolutely astonishing. Astronomical. Astronomical. Like you, you tweeted and I looked it up. So there's NBA uh, top shots. So I went in there and I had a look at it. I'm like, oh, well, I'll buy a pack of these, right? Why not? For $9? Of course I'll buy a pack. I'm like known as the guy that invests a little bit in everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) So I go in there and they're sold out. So I'm like, well, I'll check the marketplace. And like, you go in there and it blows my mind because there's a, a a clip of a player making a fantastic dunk and you can buy it for $25, but there's what? 477 sellers and there's also a guy that's listing it for $250,000 and I'm going, uh, th- there's something crazy going on here and Chrissy, you wouldn't believe it. Like It'll blow your mind. And this isn't just uh, sports collectibles. It can be art. Uh, there's other non-fungibles out there that are, are being created. Like Look up CryptoKitties. Absolutely. It's the same thing. It's digital art, but it's like, it's, but there's a bidding. It's like, it's this marketplace is crazy. Yeah. And so I'll just say this, like a lot of people are going to ask, why would I pay $10 or $10,000 for something that I could watch on YouTube or download, right? Yeah. It's the same concept as why would I pay $150 for a piece of cardboard with Michael Jordan on it? It's because there's a story attached to it. And because other people find value in that item, either sentimental or social value, I can trade that card for somebody and they'd be willing to give me a lot because, you know, they grew up watching Michael Jordan. And this card represents the first time that he stepped on the hard court and he let the world know that he was there. So as long as there's someone out there who has that story, if there's a collective agreement that this certain thing has value, then it has value. Right. Like I can make an argument that a gold bar has no value. Like a gold bar has no cash flow. It has no customers. Like it doesn't necessarily like one gold bar to the next. Who cares? Right. But we have all agreed that since from the beginning of when they had money, people were breaking off chips of gold and trading them for valuable items that now gold is something that we agree has value. But if you really look at it, it's a metal that comes out the ground. It's no different than nickel. It's no different than palladium, platinum, silver. Maybe its scarcity is different, but we can't prove exactly down to the decimal how much gold is in the world. The reason people love these NFTs is because you know exactly where it came from. You know exactly how much uh, people are willing to buy it for right now and how much they were willing to buy it for in the past. And really, the technology is just so new that I think that's really what people are getting excited about. There's other applications of blockchain technology that really would affect our whole daily lives, right? Imagine now knowing exactly where the carton of milk that you're drinking came from and going to the grocery store and scanning a QR code or a barcode. And it shows you, you know, this came from Calgary or or scanning a carton of eggs and saying this egg was laid seven days ago, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. it's the same technology that people are using to track the value of these digital assets that we're going to be able to see is going to be embedded in our driver's license, maybe in your health card. So you can see every doctor appointment that you've ever had and all the prescriptions that you're supposed to fill, right? It's the same technology. And I partially believe that's why the excitement, people have been seeing Bitcoin, but they want to see what's the next application of blockchain technology. Mm -hmm. And these digital collectibles are that. Yeah. 
it, it's super interesting and I'm definitely not a tech guy at all. I'm too busy digging into like traditional finance, but I find these things super fascinating because it's just amazing. And, and you're right. These are going to start uh, working their way into the rest of our lives. And I was walking my dogs with my wife yesterday and I was trying to explain to her about these NFTs and she's a lot smarter than I am. And, and I said to her, I said, for example, like your house could become an NFT, right? It could have the tracking of, of its every owner it's ever had it's it's kind of a one of a kind thing it, we could eliminate a lot of systems that are required to track your, the house's title and all the rest of it and if you tracked it in a blockchain method you create like this one storehouse that's secured of all the data for that that's ever existed it's pretty amazing and it goes peer to peer that's the main thing right it exactly. doesn't have to go through any intermediary other than the marketplace itself which is literally just a computer algorithm so i don't have to go to a broker and say hey can you get this to somebody else there's there's no need for that it's literally from me to you and the software if you will basically facilitates the movement of that value that's what the blockchain is it's the internet 3.0 yeah 1.0 was the movement of information you can go online and you can look at you know instead of going in your encyclopedia you go online right or you can send a message to somebody internet 2.0 that was when there was a decentralization of influence, right? Because we had high-speed internet in Internet 2.0. So we could do things like a podcast. We could have a live video stream. We could have YouTube. You now have people who are not on TV becoming celebrities because now you have the means to produce at that high level. Now, Internet 3.0. <laughs> He's laughing. He's laughing because I'm pointing at myself. <laughs> but you are. You are, right? Think about how many people are going to hear you and only because of internet 2.0 you're mm -hmm. able to spread your message now internet 3.0 is the decentralization of value right so now i can send money to you or valuable items to you without having to have anybody in between i don't need to go through td bank i don't need to go through royal bank i don't need to go through quest trade we can do it one-on-one -on -one and that's because of the blockchain. So I, if you guys are interested, definitely Google it. It will be a serious rabbit hole. Get some water and a blanket. You're going to be sleeping in there. It's hard. It's hard to get out of that rabbit hole, I'll tell you. Well, I, I think what people should do is follow you. Like Throughout this conversation, you've just shown us that you have this crazy amount of knowledge and you just have this knack for breaking it down into terms that people can understand and i'm so glad you're out there to spread this kind of knowledge because not everyone has that knack or that ability to be able to explain something super complicated and make it explain it in a way that anyone can understand and i think you're you're just an expert at that i have to say thank you very much that's the biggest compliment i could get it's true well before we go Please let us know all the places, because there's a few, <laughs> where our listeners can follow the Courtney Stephen. Well, to be to be honest, um, the main place is just on my website, CourtneyStephen.com, and that's Stephen with a PH. And on any social media, I'm just The C. Stephen with a PH. Yeah, just try to keep it simple. But I'll be writing, I'll be recording videos, I'll be posting whatever the platform allows, I'm putting it all out. Yeah, you're pretty quick with the YouTubes. You're coming out with those fairly regularly. And I know that's a, a big source of media for a lot of people these days. Even I'm trying it. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the show. And the conversation was even deeper than what I expected. You're an amazing guy. You're very knowledgeable in the finance area. And like, you're also an awesome athlete. It's been a, a real privilege to talk to you. Thanks so much. 
Hey, it's been a it's a, been a pleasure of mine. I've been listening to you guys for such a long time. It's cool to be here and uh, chat with you live. Yeah, when I saw you tweet about one of our episodes, like oh, he listens to our show, <laughs> we gotta bring him on. This guy's awesome. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad we connected. It was cool. Yes, thank you, Courtney. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you've been getting value from our content, please support us in the following ways. Leave us a review and subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Tell your friends and family about us or use our referral links at explorefycanada.ca forward slash recommendations. All of our show notes can be found at explorefycanada.ca. You can also find us on our other websites, figarage.ca or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our show is edited and mixed by Max Desmarais at Fix Audio. That's F-I-X-A-U-D dot I-O. Episode transcripts were created in otter.ai.